Welcome back to the Outdoor Classrooms podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Today, I have Valerie Bang Jensen for on for our episode of this podcast, and she is going to be giving us a sneak peek into her new book called Move Literacy Outdoors, Learning Approaches for Any Environment. Valerie Bang Jensen is a professor of education at St. Michael's College, where she has earned the college's Rathgeb Teaching Award. She has received her A.B. at Smith College, an MA, MED, and EDD degrees from the Teachers College at Columbia University. Valerie has taught in K through 6 classrooms, in library programs, in public and independent schools in the U.S. and in Paris. She serves as a consultant for museums, libraries, schools, and gardens for children. Valerie is interested in children's literature and the connections between literacy and first-hand experiences. Valerie has co-founded the Teaching Gardens at St. Michael's College. One of the gardens within the Teaching Gardens is based on another book that she's co-authored called Books in Bloom. This garden features flowers and plants found in children's books. And along with another garden, there are many, many gardens in that incredible teaching garden, there's another one called the Word Garden. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about really how to move literacy outdoors. And we put it into the interviews of this month, which we're talking about the infrastructure of outdoor classrooms. And I thought initially that it would be kind of an interview that would go into the teaching and learning segment, but actually after the interview, I realized, wow, it's there's a lot of inf- infrastructure that in, that's involved in bringing literacy outdoors. So a lot of what we're going to be talking about is why move literacy outdoors? Uh, how do you prepare for spontaneity? Uh, what is a story walk? What is a word garden? Why study signage? Which path to take? And how to get started? So without further ado, Valerie Bang Jensen. Welcome back to the Outdoor Classrooms podcast. We have Valerie here from the St. Michael's College, and she has written a new book called Literacy Moves Outdoors. And I'm going to have her introduce herself, and then we're going to dive right into our interview. Welcome, Valerie. Thanks, Victoria. It's great to be back and to talk about this new project. I am a professor of education at St. Michael's College in Colchester, Vermont, outside of Burlington. And I work with pre-service teachers, undergrads who would like to be elementary teachers. And my area is literacy. I get to teach children's literature. Mm. And I run the teaching gardens of St. Michael's College with my biology professor colleague and friend, Mark Lepkowitz. And... We have a collection of gardens there, a Books in Bloom garden, uh, which features plants from children's books. We have a word garden, and I'll be talking more about how people can create their own word gardens. Uh, We've got a native plants garden, and we've got an international garden there. Uh, So I rely on the gardens in many of my courses for the teachers to help them get comfortable with moving literacy outdoors with their future classes. That's fantastic. I think every school should have exactly a model of what you are doing at St. Michael's. So I appreciate you and what you're doing. And so now you have a new book that is coming out called Literacy Moves Outdoors. And the subtitle is Learning Approaches for Any Environment. My first question is, what inspired you to write this book? 
Well, I mentioned that those gardens on campus on purpose because over the years, my biology colleague, Mark Lukowitz, who teaches plant biology, and I have thought about how in college we really encourage silos. You know, kids major in something um, and they minor in something else. But when children go to school, they don't separate things into different categories. They take it all in and they don't call it reading or math or science. They just call it playing outdoors or drawing or whatever. And so Mark and I realized that we had the opportunity to build a garden where my children's literature and elementary education students could work with his and they would sort of cross-pollinate, so to speak, where the plant biologist had something to offer about the plants and my students had something to offer about ways to teach people about those plants and to pull in literacy. And so for years now, they've been creating tours and learning experiences for all ages of visitors that neither group could do on their own. And so I've been thinking about this for a while, like why literacy outdoors? What gets people excited? What are the opportunities and why do it? And the thing that I've noticed over the last few years with all the screens in our lives is that a lot of children, I wonder, do a lot of children think reading and writing is something you do in school, but not outside of school? And I think if we can start to have this little segue or transition where they're outside doing those things, that they'll start to take that with them everywhere they go. And they'll see that literacy is really everywhere they go. So that got me thinking about it. And we had done some work already with a word garden at our college and this literature garden. And so I pulled those together and I developed a few other ideas too. So that's sort of how it came to be. Fantastic. Fascinating. Fascinating. Why do you find it important to move literacy outdoors? So I think that literacy, when you read and write about something, it helps you understand it in a new way. Certainly just being outside, there's so much going for it. And I can't talk about it without referring to Richard Louvre and David Sobel and one of my new favorite people, Juliet Robertson, who's from yes. Scotland. And they they can convince anyone about the, the positive aspects of being outdoors and how our senses help us learn about the outdoors. And, and a lot of children react to being outdoors in, in a really different way than being indoors. It can be very calming. It can be compelling in terms of their thinking. But I would, I really, what this book does is help you think about how does literacy help them explore the outdoors and how does it inspire them to read and write? And the, the different chapters that I have help you explore that in different ways. I have a, a many friends who are teachers. I'm in the schools all the time. And one of them said, you know, it's a beautiful day. Sometimes I just want to grab and go, like grab some literacy and go. So I start with, all right, if that's your inspiration, maybe the art teacher is sick that day and you have your class, or it's just a beautiful day and you just can't stand being inside one more minute, mm -hmm. what can you grab to go outside and do something with literacy? So that's one of the chapters. Yeah, how do and you prepare for spontaneity? That's, <laughs> that's exactly right, exactly right. So do you, should I give the, an overview or should I just start right there? Whatever you want. Yeah. Okay. So, so it goes, it goes on to the spontaneity that you plan for. 
to story walks, which are very common everywhere. They started in Montpelier, Vermont, and now they're all over the world, where you can set one up or borrow one from a library or have kids write their own. And so I talk about different ways you can do that. And I move on to word gardens, which which are essentially moving words around in a Zen-like setting, perhaps. And then we looked at interpretive signage, which is a really favorite thing, new favorite thing of mine. If you imagine going to a national park or a state park or a museum or an overlook somewhere where they have a sign, it's a really compressed way of a writer engaging with an audience. It's writing short text, and it's very compelling for kids. So I have a chapter about that. And then the last one is about literacy trails. And I've divided those into two, two kinds of trails. One is trails of application and practice, mm-hmm. where you can create trails where, where kids can practice new skills that they're learning, literacy skills. And the other, the trails of exploration and discovery, are more using those other tools like story walks and signage to explore a nature path and help interpret it for other people. And I I wrap up the book with some suggestions and resources for teachers to get started in terms of funding and administrative support, partnerships in your community. So that's kind of a, a description, an overall description of the book. Brilliant. It's brilliant. It's it's very concrete with some wonderful, wonderful examples that anybody can go in and, and sort of, oh, I want to do a story walk and really understand, here are some examples and to go to run with it. Is there one or the other that you would like to talk further about, a story walk or word garden or signage or... Uh, well, let's see. I could talk about all of them. <laughs> I'm trying to think about your audience and the age, um, because that might help me speak we, more to, the, to what they might be interested in. We have probably a lot of folks that are early childhood providers, but being the podcast, it might be a whole spectrum. So sure, sure. So I'll start with story walks because they're familiar. Yeah. Um, To many people, it's just you take a book apart and you post the pages and you post them far enough apart so people walk. (laughs) So that's why it's a story walk. And I provide a lot of logistics in my book for how to prepare the pages. Um, You always need two copies of the book because pages are printed on both sides. Mm -hmm. And if you posted just one side, you'd miss you'd miss what happens next on the other side. It's actually I have not done I I know folks in our membership have done story walks. So it's I funny enough, have not. So this book is very much inspiring me. So if I were to go out and I wanted to make, I thought about adding one to our, we had a beautiful lantern walk and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great to a part of, you know, include a story walk as part of that. So it's literally taking the book. You take two copies of the book and you take it apart. And that's kind of scary for people. I know. Um, I'm just sort of thinking, oh. So once you you own the book, you can do whatever you want with it, except you can't copy it. It's against copyright. But you can take take it apart. You literally take it apart. You have to you have to peel the pages away from the spine. And wow, that's what you do. And then you, I'm sure you've noticed how books are sewn together. Yeah. So you might take a seam ripper or scissors and you cut cut it apart. And you do that with two copies. And then you 
you set it up. I usually use little dots and put them on the back so I know which is the first page, the second page, the third mm-hmm. page. Sometimes I need to cut them in half and put them together with packing tape. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I typically take them to a place like Staples and ask them to laminate them. Right. Um, people can laminate their own. You want as thick thick lamination as you can get. I have done um, board books and used my own laminating uh, paper oh, to do wow. it because they're so thick they won't go through a machine. Mm-hmm. I had a great one I did for an early childhood center called Some Bugs, which is a rhyming book, but it's a lot about this how the structure and function of the of the bug helps it feed itself and mm-hmm. and move around. And so for that one, I just did my own laminating and then we hung it up using uh, binder clips with mm-hmm. a nail on the fence of the yard of this yeah. little early childhood center. So there are a lot of different ways you, you can do it. You've got my mind ticking because I, it's, I was always stumped at the first step, which was you take the book apart, which seems so dramatic. <laughs> I know it's, it goes against everything we've always learned, right? Right. Yeah. But I'm like, and, oh wow, yes, I can now. I can envision that. Is I, mm-hmm. I will put that on my list. And you, sometimes, if your budget allows, you'd want to buy a third one because then you could read it to them, right, inside, and then you could go out, or if it's a nice day, you read it outside, or you just go go with the flow. If if it's not clear, we in our garden we have to. Okay, so we have fence posts. Mm-hmm. We have a maybe a rectangle piece of plywood that we've attached, and that becomes the stand for the um, pages. So that's like our hardware. We have these stands, Mm -hmm. and then we just swap out the books all the time. That's like like our software. And so, you know, we have one on campus that's about um, maple sugaring. So Mm. we put that up in March, and we have another one about... Um, pollination and bees. We might put that out in the spring. So some of the ways that you choose the book might help children, readers, walkers relate to what's happening in nature at the time. Um, yeah. And so the, and, and you have recommendations in your book on books. I do. I have so many. So um, many. And I also have a, a table that helps you choose how do you choose what kind of book? And so it's things like the seasons or it might that relate to a particular setting. There was a a state park naturalist who told me that she picked the Lorax because the movie was coming out. She wanted them to read the book first in the woods. I know that there's, there's other wonderful poetry books like Forest Has a Song. So you might do that if you're in an urban setting. You might want to try, you know, Last Stop on Market Street, which is about a bus ride. You might pick a book that shows how universal your experience is about a um, family going on a picnic or having a birthday party. So it doesn't always have to relate to nature, but it can. And it's a wonderful way. One of my favorites was a book called Mama Built a Nest, and oh, it was yeah. about all the different kinds of nests, and, and everyone would look at the page, then they'd look up to see if they could see <laughs> a nest. So yeah. that's a wonderful one. There, there's some great ones about bees. But I think that one underutilized possibility for story walks is to have children write their own. Oh. And these can take the form of a drawing. Mm-hmm. It could take the form of, you know, a poem. It could be a story that they write together and dictate if they're young. And there could be one sentence with a picture on each one that you go to. 
I heard a music teacher once did a Pete Seeger song about the green grass grew all around. And she did a different verse on each one. And the kids, she took them outside during the first week of class and of school in the fall. And they went and they sang the song as they did Mm. the walk. So it was really, really lovely. Because you've now got my mind spinning. Um, So with the stands, I'm going back to the infrastructure. (laughs) Yes. That they are they they're they're permanent. Do do you have a permanent? Is that like a? We we do. Some schools have them up all year. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great photo in my book of a first grade teacher who had great intentions of putting up a story walk in October. That was an alphabet book, and it was based on her her first grade class reviewing the alphabet with photos from their school garden. Mm. And by the time, so they, she structured it with A is four and they would fill in, there would be a picture of one of them with, you know, an apple or something and they would do the writing and she got them all laminated. But by the time it was ready, it was winter and the snow was falling, <laughs> but she put it up anyway and they put on their snow suits and they did it. it out. Um, so if you have, as I said, if you have the structures up all year, either nails on a fence or fence posts with yeah. you know a backing, you can you can just swap them out. In fact, it might get oh, so yeah. popular that you know people have to sign up. Well, I get it for these two weeks, and you can yeah. have it for these two weeks. But the great thing is, in a school or any kind of place where there are, are multiple groups, it's a common space. Mm-hmm. You know, so often classrooms. It's Valerie's classroom or it's Victoria's mm-hmm. classroom, but an outdoor space is a shared space. And not only is it shared in terms of logistical sharing, but it brings wonderful things to everyone who uses it. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. I'm very inspired. <laughs> I'm ready to go make my story walk because now I'm like, okay, now I've got the tools, which is wonderful, which is all what your book is all about. Can you tell me a little bit about, so I work with preschoolers. I know a lot of our listeners are also early childhood educators. How do you bring a word garden? I know you, that's one of your chapters Mm -hmm. when they may not necessarily be reading or they're beginning to read, but really bringing that into your outdoor space as something that they might actually interact with or understand or what's your recommendation? Sure. So I often, you know, because we don't have anything visual here, will help people understand what it is by by saying how think of magnetic poetry, mm-hmm. where you have words that you move around mm-hmm. on a refrigerator. So these are words that are in an outdoor space that you can move around in the same way. And I like to include so the words might be on stones, painted mm-hmm. or or etched, or you put on with chalk. And you can get back to the logistics. You can find them or you can buy them at the big box stores, the big hardware stores. They're called river stones. Yeah. So you can use those. I've all, I've also gone to those same stores and bought long pieces of wood and set like two by fours and said, can you cut them in various lengths for me? Mm. And they will. And then I sand them. So they're like blocks of wood Mm. and you can write on those with marker or paint or chalk. And also I experimented with the lids from jars and I painted those. Um, And if you use chalkboard paint on them, then chalk works really well. Mm -hmm. So once you have those, you can write words, 
Names are really popular. We all know that's one of the first things that kids learn to recognize, and they like knowing their friends' names. But the other thing is you can draw alpha, you can draw letters. You can have the whole alphabet on the stone, on different five stones that have the letter A, five stones for all the vowels. I don't know how many you need of each, but I would definitely start with enough letters for everybody's name. So we're talking several hundred here, depending on your group, of course. But I think that having the letters enables them to do all kinds of things. They can group the letters together, mm-hmm. all the A's, all the B's. They can spell their name. Mm-hmm. They can do all kinds of things just using letters like they would on with magnet letters on a refrigerator or a magnet board of some sort. And then you can have you can introduce words as they start to learn some of those. The whole word you can, you know, in schools, they use sight words that are phonetically hard to to sound out like the. So you can have some of those. There's just all kinds of things. Anything you can do inside. With with letters and numbers, you can do outside. No, I've done it. I've put it on little wood cookies, but over time, it's sort of I've left it outside. It's it's sort of. But I'm thinking this the the rock garden is. I've really got to up my game with that. I think that would be really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Very lucky children. <laughs> <laughs> what about sign? Can you tell us a little bit more about signage? Sure. So signs. I think signage is a great genre. Um, We see signs everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, I note that one of the first things that children recognize is a stop sign. It's a certain color. It's a certain shape. They start to notice it's near a street. Signs help us solve problems, okay? There's a problem here with pedestrians and cars, so you put a sign, right? I did a whole study of signage, and there's a great model where they where um, they say, here's some different things that signs help us solve. And one is just an entry. Where do I go in? And it might say, welcome to this school, or welcome to this park, or just the name of a park, or the name of a classroom. Those are all entry, and they help solve the problem of what is this? Yeah. And and then on a smaller scale, you have identification signs. And we see these all the time in, in grocery stores. Mm-hmm. Apples, Granny Smith apples, Ruby Frost apples. We see it at in gardens, Petunia, Dahlia. Yeah. We see it in classrooms where we label pencils at where things go, right? Signs help us clean up, right? Where do I put this? Well, it says pencils here. So so we've got entry, we've got identification, we have temporary. And temporary might be something that's announcing, you know, sale two days only or buy one, get one free. Or kindergarten is going to put on the hungry caterpillar this Friday. At, at 9 a.m. So those are temporary. They come, they go. Regulatory, those are sort of the rules, okay? Mm-hmm. Walk on the mulch, not on the garden. No right turn. We see those. We see those. Those are yeah. those keep us safe, usually. Mm-hmm. And then there are interpretive signage um, that those are the ones that give us information. They tell us about something. Yeah. And those, this is something that I think kids are are perfect for for classrooms because they are short text so you can teach children about voice and audience and visual text which is symbols and signs and color mm. and verbal text which are the words and how they go together so in my book for example i have a picture of a sign that's 
says garden with an arrow, and then there's a wheelchair underneath. It doesn't say handicapped accessible. That's mm-hmm. what having the wheelchair says. So kids kids know about icons and emojis and things that stand for something else. And the, sometimes when space is valuable, like on a sign, that's the best way to communicate some information. So signage invites them to do that. And I had, I'll give you a little example of some fifth graders who created signs interpretive signs. So we're talking just one panel. And they had created a wildlife corridor from one side of their school to the other. There were two little sets of woods. They noticed because they had a camera up that animals were crossing in the back. So they worked with a parks ranger in the city of Burlington to, to grow some trees that could provide a barrier for the animal crossing. And then they wrote about it so that people would understand what was happening. So signage helps visitors and people new to an area know what's going on if nobody else is around, right? Yeah. So if you're there, you can explain it. But if you're not, what will help people understand what's happening? There's all kinds of things that they can learn about writing interpretive signage. And I worked with a number of of professional interpreters, professional sign makers. And they gave us, they gave me a couple of tips. And one was that I was fascinated by was the 333 rule. And the 333 rule means you have three seconds to grab someone's attention with this sign. So your big title needs to be something that hooks people. And as an example, I was at an arboretum in Pennsylvania, and they had a big sign panel about squirrels. And the three seconds was, do you have what it takes to be a squirrel? (laughs) Right? So you want to know, okay, do I? Right? So then you have 30 seconds, okay, to give some information. Someone's going, the average person is going to spend 30 seconds. And so They divide it up into different quadrants. You have to be adaptive. You have to be curious. You have to be, I can't remember all the things. Mm -hmm. But but there was a picture and just a sentence for each one. And that was my 30 seconds way in. And then the three at the end. So we have the three seconds, the 30 seconds, the three minutes at the end are for those people like my husband, who have to read everything and want to know more about everything. So most people will do the three seconds and the 30 seconds, and then the three minutes goes deeper. And you can see that when you go to a museum or Mm -hmm. a park where they've thought about the different levels of interest. And we can also see this in picture books, nonfiction picture books, where there are different levels of text. So you could go right through it with your two-year-old, But your six-year-old, who's also listening, might want to see the sort of thumbnails with more details. So there's different layers of information. And it's a great way for kids to think about main idea and then sort of the next level and then the into the weeds depth all on one panel. And it it, it really helps them develop voice Mm -hmm. and think about what will the audience need to know here at this Animal Crossing. Brilliant. Brilliant. So it's really, it's to to walking into a space in an outdoor classroom and really having the signage tell the story. Well, exactly. And you want the people to, what do you want your guests to feel and learn? And well, and when you say feel, that's their other mantra, these professional sign makers, 
They talk about having something for your head, so new yeah. information, something for your heart, mm. like how does it make you feel, like you just said. And then they also talk about hand. And hand is just a shortcut way of saying, have your audience want to get involved. Like uh, either go look up more or find out more about other crossings. Do yeah, something. That's great. So the final one is, this is fantastic, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the final one is the path that the path to take with a question mark. Right. So I don't know how many of the people that you're working with watched their children take phys ed during the pandemic online. The <laughs> <laughs> one thing that was very successful for many people who could get outside was phys ed teachers created these paths, these these movement paths. And so they would design, they would have a spiral that meant somebody should spin, or they would have a place where people hopped or did different movements. And so one one kind of path or, or, or literacy path can be to create a key where kids create it, they make their own symbol, mm-hmm. and then they create a path and other people follow it. So it, it's literacy in the sense that you're creating a symbol and a meaning just like we have words that have meanings mm-hmm. um, and set that up for people where literacy can come into it is when you're practicing learning letters, you know, hop on all of the vowels or, or whatever, or even words that rhyme, which mm-hmm. is working on phonics. So mm-hmm. all the words that have at you jump to those, or if you use a wheelchair, you roll to those. And then you can get more complicated. One of the things that teachers, primary grade teachers work with children a lot on what's the beginning, the middle and the end of a story. So when you come to a place where it says beginning or a B, um, you, you stop and you tell what was the beginning of the story that you just heard and what's the middle and what's the end. They're not just sitting and talking, but they're actually moving while they're doing it. And as the kids get older, there are all kinds of other comprehension trails that you can do for retellings, which is a key comprehension skill to have. And I, I, David Sobel talks a lot about miniature worlds and how much children like those. And one of my favorite new words is meeple. Do you know meeple? A meeple is any kind of marker that you use on a board game. You know, the little things you move around, those are called meeples. So you can actually also have miniature literacy trails where the meeples go through the the beginning, the middle, and the end of a story. But then the other kind of path that I thought about are actual nature trails that you might create on your school property. Mm -hmm. And that's where you would put into use some of these other approaches, like a story walk that goes through that trail or interpretive signage that explains the history of this trail or what you're trying to do with the trail and includes identification signage for different plants or trees that might be involved or buildings along the way. So So it's a lot of work. We talk a lot about in, we have five phases of teaching outdoors and phase one being infrastructure and talking about, this is fascinating to me because I didn't sort of think initially that we would be talking so much about infrastructure, but actually it's the infrastructure, creating the infrastructure to bring the literacy outdoors. So it's really fascinating. So in terms of you, you kind of close, you kind of describe your whole book as a, as you're a quilter. I, I love that. So pulling it all together is in your final chapter, getting started. That's where I think maybe a lot of 
listeners might be like, where I get a lot of calls. Where do I start? We have this great Mm -hmm. idea. We have this space. What do I do? Where to start? And we've talked a lot about different things that you can do and the infrastructure, which I love. I'm ready to go dive in and implement some of many of your ideas. How would you inspire? What would be your, your advice for getting educators to just start? Well, I think, um, I did some, I had some focus groups when I did my, um, when I was working on this and one of the people who came was an administrator and I don't know how many of your listeners are involved in a, in a a site that has an administrator, school principal or director of something, but he said, get them on your side and do it by saying, here's what kids will learn by doing, by being outside. And that actually another teacher who was in the same group said, that her principal had pointed her to a grant, a state grant for special educators and literacy. And she applied and got it to help set up that hardware for story, for story walks. She also bought a wagon because they couldn't keep a permanent word garden outside. Mm -hmm. So she had a a portable word garden and they would Mm -hmm. bring it outside and use it on the playground and then bring it inside. So I think your administrator may be more supportive than, than you might anticipate, especially if you can explain what some of your goals are. So I think that that's, that's key. Another one is to think about funding and potential donors. And I think there are, in Vermont and New Hampshire, we have something called CLIF, which is the Children's Liter- uh, Literacy Foundation. And they have grants and they help by giving books to kids. And, and you could turn those into story walks pretty easily. So they're also other grants for for literature and literacy and also outdoor learning kids gardening has has grants and a lot of lists for other places that give grants if it's not specifically for gardening mm-hmm. um, i think partnerships are great i think what grocery store wouldn't want to have a story walk at their at their their own at their grocery store or they might help you with just buying a few it's not that expensive to do one story walk if you mm-hmm. have your hardware set up and if, if it's hardware, why not ask one of those big hardware stores they'd like to contribute? I think having a space is important at your school. Do you have a shared space? Is it temporary like my student who brought a wagon mm-hmm. or are there, is it going to be permanent? I think it's great to find one colleague in your building or at your, your center who is interested also sort of to to work together and maybe I will I will set up one story walk and and my colleague will set up one story walk and then the next year we'll do it again mm-hmm. and again and all of a sudden you have several that you can rotate volunteers are great parents college students I think getting somebody to just put it together I've heard of Pete the school that I know that has the story walk up all year was a bunch of parents who put it together and it was a one-time thing somebody goes through and tightens the screws but the screws are already there (laughs) Um, so then it's really just the teachers who put up different ones the principal at that school also puts one up every now and then. Oh, he, I love that. he draws his own cartoons. Pick one thing. Start small. Uh, we talked in the beginning about my colleague who wanted to grab and go. And I think if you have a backpack that has a, a couple of great books about trees or just 
whatever you're reading as you read aloud, take mm-hmm. it outside. Yeah. And then you can slowly develop it. You have a backpack for books about clouds and you have a backpack with books about bees. And so you sort of develop a collection over time. Um, mm. You don't have to do it all at once. And the last thing I'll say that I learned from some teachers who, who went outside a lot during the pandemic was to develop what your norms are for working together outside, that some things are the same, whatever your your group norms are, be be respectful, be responsible, be safe. That works outside too. But there may be a few things that are different when you're outside just because it's a different space and figure out what those are and make sure everybody knows. Perfect. Perfect. I want to thank you. This is, I'm left with an abundance of ideas and I'm completely inspired. So you have this wonderful book, Literacy Moves Outdoors, where if you're an educator listening, where can they find it? I will leave links in in our show notes. So it's available at Heinemann, the publishers, and it also just went up on Amazon. Wonderful. Those would be the two places. It's not out yet, but I know Heinemann is taking pre-orders, and I think you can also pre-order it on Amazon. Great. So Seth, I will put those links in the show notes. Great. And also in our what goes out in our podcast news. Great. So we, what, if educators had any questions, can, can they find you somewhere? I know. Yes, certainly. College. If you just find me at St. Michael's College, it's I can send it to you. You could put it in the show notes. You can email Perfect. me there. I'd love to hear what you try and what you do and any suggestions. Great, great. Well, thank you very much. Any other things that you want to share with our audience? Uh, just, just get outside and don't let the weather stop you. I'm sure you hear that from Victoria all the time. <laughs> I just did some ice hearts. And an ice stained glass window, which is really just ice with with flower petals in it. And it's a lot of fun. And it's especially wonderful because it's ephemeral. It's here when it's cold and it's going to be gone. And I think that's just a, a magical thing about weather. Yeah. I'm excited. We're actually doing going to do the try because it's from the Valentine bouquets. So thinking about <laughs> where do you find the flowers? So to so recycling as well. So I want to thank you again. Thanks for having me. It was a lot okay. of fun. So if you like this podcast and you're getting something out of it, if it feels good and you walk away going, ah, oh, the day feels brighter and I want to go outside, then I want you to tell your fellow educators, parents, and friends about it. I want everyone to feel this awesome about getting outdoors and all the possibilities for playful learning with children when you get out there. So if you are talking about outdoor classrooms and you like talking about outdoor classrooms and teaching outdoors and all the different possibilities, subscribe to us and leave a review. We would love to have you. Go to our Outdoor Classrooms Facebook page in our group our Instagram pages, and tell us what your outdoor classroom challenges are. Want to dig deeper? Check out our Outdoor Classroom Circle membership community. It's like no other. Tell your fellow educators and let's start a little revolution about outdoor classrooms. When every child in every school has access to an outdoor classroom and learning gardens, then we will have more beauty in this world. Let's get creative and bring more joy into our teaching outdoors.